KPBS On Demand is brought to you by the San Diego County Toyota dealers, committed to enhancing the driving experience with vehicles like the 2021 Highlander with a 12.3 touchscreen display and all-wheel drive capabilities. To learn more, visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. So say we all. From So Say We All in KPBS in San Diego, welcome to Incoming the public radio series that features true stories from American service members told in their own words, straight from their own mouths. I'm your host, Justin Hudnall. Today's episode, Everything is a War, focuses on stories about how serving in a war zone can stick to a person, just like how the dust in the desert can get into every crevice of a person's boots and uniform and duffel bag and underwear so deeply that traces of it will still magically appear months and even years after a service member returns home. War can behave similarly, with a person's mind and personality popping back up out of nowhere after drinking that one drink too many, or driving past that one pile of trash that looks perfect for hiding an IED under, or when all you want to do is sleep, but your brain has other plans for you. And it doesn't just impact service members, but the friends and lovers and family of those connected to them. We've drafted two voices to tell you stories on that front today. Musical theater composer and performer Natalie Lovejoy will join us in the second half to talk about her experience as a young military spouse and how she was able to tell her story and connect with others through musical theater. But first up, Army veteran and now police officer Vance Voyles is going to talk about how the war comes back for him and some of the calls he's responded to as a cop. But first, let me tell you a little bit about Mr. Voyles. He is a seven and a half year veteran of the U.S. Army, where he specialized as an Arabic linguist, and then upon returning home, served over a decade and a half as a police officer, working sex crimes and homicide in Central Florida before relocating. In the middle of all that, he also received his MFA in creative writing at the University of Central Florida. He's the perfect candidate to address a question we hear a lot about, whether veterans make good law enforcement. And we asked him that question, but also a lot more, because he's a really interesting dude. And while being a cop is really important to a human being's identity, the uniform does not a person make. And I'm not about to explain that for him, so without further ado, please meet your storyteller for the next half hour, Mr. Vance Voiles. Hello, my name is Vance Voiles. And the name of my story is Lights Out. The man squats low against the wall as the patrol car passes in the road behind him. Headlights grow long shadows of parked cars and tree trunks into the space where he sits hidden behind a dumpster. The stench of rotten banana peels, dead milk cartons, and day-old diapers surrounds him. He had been expecting more of a response, and he smiles at his good fortune. He waits for the engine to turn off and the slam of a door before he steals a glance to see who they have sent to take him. He shakes his arms to loosen up and rolls his neck. This is what they trained him for. This is who he was now, rock and roll. When I first got the call, the dispatcher said witnesses heard screaming and the sounds of breaking glass in the apartment below just before things went quiet. The address had no history of domestic violence. All they wanted was a check on well-being, but as I turned into the complex, the shadow of a big man sprints across the street near the dumpster where the tree line fills up the space between the highway and the apartments. I reach down and grab the hand mic to the radio and wait for a break in traffic. County 120 Alpha, going 97. 
I say. Looks like a verbal. Can I get a 44? Copy 120 Alpha, she says. A chatter of radio traffic follows, and two more units respond to head in my direction. Watching the dumpster, I pull into a faded blue handicap parking spot and turn off the engine. Then, in one swift move, I open the door, grab the heavy flashlight from its charger under the driver's seat, and step out into the night. Other than the slight breeze rustling the trees, there is no movement from the dumpster or anywhere else. Three seconds. Five. I shut the driver's door and move towards the apartments. Shards of glass sparkle in the breezeway under my flashlight's beam. From the smell of fresh phosphorus, someone has recently smashed the light bulbs dotting the dark corridor. Before knocking, I stand silent with my ear to the door, listening for some noise, anything. After three hard knocks, a girl rips open the door, crying. But when she sees me standing there in uniform, with a gun on my hip and a star on my chest, she jumps back and wilts. Her eyes are puffy, and she holds a tissue in front of her mouth. Is everything okay in there? I peer behind her to see if anyone else is inside. No, I mean, everything's okay now. She holds her arm straight against the door to hold it open. He took off when I said I was calling the cops. Who is he? Jason, my fiance. You mind if we talk inside, miss? Aaron, Aaron, I repeat. She nods and planks herself against the door to make room for me to pass. After you, I say, motioning her inside. You think he'll be back soon? I take one last look down the breezeway and follow her into the apartment. Who knows? The hallway of the apartment stands dark in contrast to the living room and the kitchen where every light is burning bright. Aaron heads straight for the couch, exhausted but wary. She is sitting in the eye of a relationship hurricane, while somewhere outside, storm bands are gearing up for another run at her. He hasn't been the same since he got back. One minute, he's a sweetheart, and the next thing, he's punching lights out with his bare hands. He won't talk about it, and I never know what's going on in his head. Next to the couch, near the sliding glass door, a black metal shotgun leans heavy against the wall. I cross the living room to close the gap. Is this loaded? It's his, so yes, probably. You mind? Not waiting for an answer, I pick it up and pull back the slide. One in the chamber and at least one more ready to go. Aaron ignores me as I cup the ejection port and unload the shotgun. She folds her arms against her chest and stares at the ground. What did you mean when you said, since he came back? Is Jason in the military? Marines, she says, but not anymore. Once the door shuts on his apartment, Jason moves from his position of cover and jogs over to the patrol car. He cups his hands against the glass, Remington shotgun locked in between the driver and passenger seat. Low light streams into the cab from the folded down screen of the laptop computer mounted to the center console. Taking the distance from the dumpster to the squad car, Jason estimates the deputy to be around six foot, 230, smaller than he is. No pictures on the dash, nothing to show who the guy is. He moves to the back window, stickers placed on the cage, Superman, Punisher, the Incredible Hulk, and then the one he is looking for, tap out. All the better, he mutters, a challenge. Jason clenches his teeth together. Why doesn't she understand what he is doing? They didn't need the police to protect and serve. That's what he is there for. He rubs the side of his head and balls his hands into fists. 
The street lights flood the parking lot and angry bees buzz inside his head. He is losing his night vision. The car door slams. Someone laughs. He needs to move, get cover. Jason looks around to his apartment, the bushes, the dumpster, the stairwell. So he's fine one minute, nervous the next. Would you say that's right, I ask? Aaron nods. Would you say this happens more at night or during the day? I jot down her answers in a small pocket notebook. This address needs hazards in the computer for future deputies coming to this apartment. I don't know. I mean, I never thought about it like that. When he first got back, it only happened when he drank too much. So I chalked it up to that, you know, blowing off steam. But then it started happening more and more, over nothing, like tonight. Aaron's eyes are dry now, clear. Not like they were when she first opened the door. What happened tonight? She shrugs in confusion. He ran a red light like for nothing. We were sitting there waiting for it to change. I think I was talking about us moving closer to my parents' house or something else completely benign. And then he starts tapping the steering wheel and looking back and forth for cars. So I'm like, honey, what's wrong? And all of a sudden he's in full freakout mode. This fucking light, what the fuck? this fucking light. And by now he's banging the steering wheel. What the fuck? what the fuck? And then he's squealing the tires through the light. I mean, thank God no one was coming. Aaron's hands work furiously in front of her telling the story in tandem. You see what I mean? One minute fine, the next minute stone cold crazy. Was he drinking tonight? I ask, regretting it instantly. You're not listening, this is not about him drinking. Sure, we had some beers with dinner, but this shit is happening all the time. Eric's shoulders collapse and she starts crying again. I love him so much, what the am I supposed to do? I went to reach out to her. Rest a hand on her shoulder. Tell her that it's going to be okay, even if that is a lie. Better yet, I want to send her to some border town in Iraq or Afghanistan and make her walk point to show her what the rest of the world is drowning out with Facebook and Twitter. I want to show her what she is missing. Jason, both versions of him. The man he used to be and the man he's afraid to tell her about. But I have a job to do. And you said he never hit you, right? At least not tonight. Aaron slumped back on the couch. No, she says. Not yet. At least she has that going for her, knowledge of the possibility. I'm gonna go outside and see if I can find him. Are there any other guns in the house besides that one? I point at the unloaded shotgun. Or on him, for that matter? No, she says. I pick up the shotgun on my way out, tuck it under the crook of my left arm, and pocket the rounds in my shirt pocket. I'm gonna go ahead and take this with me for safekeeping. He'll be able to get it back tomorrow. He's not gonna be happy about that. Oh, I'm sure he's gonna be pissed. But like I said, it's only temporary, just until we can figure out what's going on with him tonight, okay? Aaron nods, resigned to the reality of her situation. And I'm going to get you started on a statement, just to document tonight and his state of mind. Are you gonna help me at all, or just write stuff down? I wanna shake her awake. Tell her that this is bigger than her relationship with Jason. That without the proper help, her boyfriend is a time bomb ready to explode. Instead, I smile sympathetically at her. I'm gonna try to help, but writing it all down is how I get the ball rolling. White dots blink in my eyes as I step outside the door of Aaron's apartment. The sound of traffic hums in the distance. He's got to be close by, and it's only crazy if it doesn't work. 
Jason? I call out into the dark. Can you hear me? Nothing. I reach up and rub the crazy built-up adrenaline out of my neck and move towards my car in the parking lot where my backup should be pulling in. Looks like you've got something that don't belong to you, boot. Jason says from the breezeway behind me. I turn to see him. His eyes light up. His fists are mini anvils at his side. Oh yeah, he says, his jaw set in stone, breathing heavily through his nose. Rookie mistake if I ever saw one. Hold on a second, brother, I tell him. We're on the same side. Jason laughs, and a stream of saliva falls from his mouth. You're not my brother, he almost whispers. And I don't know what side you're talking about. His chest rises and falls, oblivious to the two deputies who have stepped into the breezeway behind him. My brothers, who have him in handcuffs before he knows what has happened. Perhaps he got lost in the sound of buzzing in his ears or the pixies of streetlights flitting around his head when he remembered the shotgun heavy in his hands. So cold, even though he knows the warmth of fire from long days of fighting, or how he beat back the dust of a thousand sandstorms as vehicles and buddies broke down or got blown to bits right in front of his eyes. All for the promise of a lie, Aaron's faithful understanding. Perhaps everything became clear for him. The enemy is everywhere and nowhere and in all parts in between. As I guide him back to the back seat of my patrol car, his hands cuffed behind his back, Jason's eyes turned into glass. The radio squawked, and I tell dispatch I'm heading to Lakeside Alternatives. The doctors can help him better than I can. Then Jason mumbles under his breath from the back seat. No, I tell him, even if you hadn't come back tonight, we were gonna come looking for you. You need help, man. I gestured to the other deputies driving away. We just wanna help. You don't get it, Jason says as he flops his head towards the window and the amber glow of streetlights. The stars are all gone. I should have never come back. We're back with our guest, the writer, Army veteran, and police officer Vance Voiles, discussing his writing and the transition he experienced trading one uniform for another. All right, so why don't you start us off by walking us through your reasons for joining? <laughs> you know, I had just graduated high school, and if you had told me during my senior year that a year later I'd be in the military, I would have said you were crazy. That was not even anywhere on my horizon. I went to one semester of college at a community college. I was working midnights, and I realized that this is not what I want to do either. So uh, I went to all the recruiters and tried to get the best deal I could, and, and I ended up going in the Army to learn Arabic. So, because they were going to pay for college later, and I figured later would probably be better for me than than now. I got to I got to spend the first two years in relative comfort in Monterey, California, and Washington D.C., and then boom, Gulf War, and that's where I was right after that. So, you talked to us a little bit about your experience of returning home, what it was like to kind of transition out. You know, the funny thing about it is, I'm I'm a police officer, but I have degrees in writing. Because what else do you do with degrees in writing? Um, <laughs> one of my um, lieutenants. When I left the military, I was telling him a story about something that happened when I was in Monterey. It was just a weekend getaway that just went all wrong. He was laughing really hard about it and said that, you know, he goes, he, ne- he never heard anybody tell a story the way that I had. So I was like, all right, well, I'll take a writing class and see how that goes. And the funny thing was I wrote a story called um, Behind the Walls about this incident that happened while I was in the Gulf War. Uh, this little, this young girl, her brother had picked up a, a flare 
bomb kind of thing. I don't really know what it was. All I know is that when he, he picked it up to toss it around, it, it went off and it burned his leg, her legs and his legs. And so they came to me and some other people that I was with. But that story, when I was in class, I was 26 when I got out of the military and everybody in college was like 18. I didn't even know how to talk to them, didn't have anything in common with them. But this story, when they read it, they were like, wow, that's really cool. And it got a conversation going. I was like, this is really cool. I'm going to do more of this. So that's what I ended up doing. Prior to your discovering writing as a way to kind of bridge that gap between your classmates and yourself, did you really feel having lived a different life than, than your peers when you came back at 27? Yeah, you know, and it's, it's, I know it's worse now. I mean, it's so much worse now because of Afghanistan and Iraq. I was fortunate. The Gulf War was tame compared to what, what the soldiers coming back now are doing and dealing with. Because I was, I remember coming back and just, I, I spent the four months there and then I went back later on for another six-month tour. And I got back and the nervous energy, you know, when I saw my parents, it was like, lost it all right there. And everybody said, would you go back? I said, if I can guarantee that I won't get killed, I had a great time. Because you got to see different things and different people, different cultures, and experience what Life is like everywhere, as opposed to just here in the States where things are really, really good, even when they're not, even when they're bad, they're still better than what it could be. I think that the issue was for me was I was living in the real world and all these people here were living in their own purple sky world where everything was sunshine and roses. And I'm like, that's not life. You know, it's hard to be gritty at 25 (laughs) in college. Would you call that like having experienced the real and kind of encountering people who hadn't? Yeah. I mean, that's... I mean, it's, honestly, it's one of the reasons I went back into the in, what I, why I went into law enforcement afterwards. Because my father was a police officer, but I didn't think again nothing that I would have I would never have said I'm going to do that for the rest of my life. But I missed the camaraderie of people that lived in what I consider the real world, which is not that pretty sometimes. That when you're in the military and you're fighting or you're just dealing with the military in, in general, it's such a different landscape. You know, the calling in sick. <laughs> you don't want to go to work that day, so you just. Ugh. Pick up the phone and call in sick. You no, know, that's not the way it works. You got to go over. You got to go to the hospital there. They may or may not let you call in sick that day. You can get in trouble for getting a sunburn because you damaged government property. I mean, that's a different kind of world. You're not your own person, but you're part of something bigger. Which I like being part of something bigger. So that's why why I do what I do. Do you ever have a moment? And I ask this mostly because it's not a rational perception that the military is so perceived as being one kind of block thing. And I think that also applies to law enforcement, where it's kind of one of those job titles that that can kind of become superimposed over your identity from an outsider. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, do you ever feel resentful of that? And do you ever feel kind of like locked into these? Because you've got two of them now under your belt. You've got soldier and you've got police officer. You know, I... I can't really even escape it the way I look. You can't see me, but I mean, I, I, I look like somebody who is in that line of work. I went to a Kentucky Fried Chicken one time, and the guy was handing me my food, and he's like, a cop, firefighter, or a wrestler? I'm like, just give me my food. Um, so, you know, so this world, I do feel a part, but I have several different lives. I've got the writer life, I've got the cop life, and then I've got the church life. And so, you know, my Facebook feed is a huge fight and battle between the left and right side of politics because I want to help, but I also realize that life is the way life is. And sometimes sometimes things that we don't want to believe are true are true. I just try to make the best of both worlds. That make, that makes sense? Sure. And I definitely can say you'd have some lively cross dialogue on your Facebook feed. Oh, yeah. Feed. Oh, yeah. <laughs> It's like Skittles had a fight with gun owners. I, you know, it's, I'm just, I want, every, I want everybody to be happy. That's all. Right. There's a moment in your story in Light South that I wanted to ask you about, and it's the moment when you're encountering 
this guy's girlfriend and he's coming out. What was the moment you recognized what was happening and, and what did you draw from in your experience prior? What did it remind you of that you had that moment of recognition? And, not, and I don't like to stereotype the military because I don't, I don't drink anyway because of, the, because of my experience. I just don't drink anyway. But there's a lot of drinking that goes on in barracks to blow off steam, to, to kind of escape from the reality that, that you're living in in the moment. And so even though he wasn't drinking that night, there's that kind of bravado that comes with too much to drink. All day long, you're supposed to hold in what you're not supposed to be talking about or not supposed to be thinking. And then when people get some alcohol in them, they're like, hey, and they just tell everybody everything. Some people are happy drunks. Some people are mean drunks. This guy would have been what I would have considered a scary, like he gets quiet kind of kind of drunk, even though he wasn't drunk, but he was that quiet, menacing, I'm going to screw things up for you right now because I can and because that's what I've been built to do and I don't know what else to do right now because that's what I've been doing for the past year, every day surviving, and right now you're my obstacle. He was a big dude. And I'm a big guy. I mean, I like I said in the story, I'm six foot two thirty, and and I work out so that I can combat whatever I need to combat. But he was a big guy. Little, little beads of sweat on his forehead, his fists the way they were. And thank goodness those guys showed up when they did, because you know it would have been a fight, and and uh, it would have been it would not have been good, you know. And I'm just glad that they were there to help and that nothing bad happened to him, because that's the other thing with being in law enforcement is. Most of us, well, all of us now, pretty much. It didn't wasn't that way before, but we're all CIT trained, which is crisis intervention team trained, which is to deal with people in crisis. Normally, in the old days, this guy would just get thumped over the head and thrown in jail and told to cool off and arrested. Whereas that could have happened that night if he had gotten if he if it had gone any farther, he could have gotten in a fight with me, and then then that it would have been a battery on law enforcement officer, and then he'd get this record for being somebody that he's probably not because he's dealing with something else. And that's the important part of CIT and law enforcement is that we recognize that, that these aren't perpetrators more as clients of mental health. And, and getting him help is the better avenue than getting him a record in jail. There's so many members of the military community who transition into law enforcement, and I wanted to ask you about what you think the strengths and potential vulnerabilities are from making that transition. The strengths are... The training, even the right mental health. If there was any issue with them coming back from a war, that they got counseling or they talk about it, because that's the great thing about being in the military and in being in law enforcement. You talk to your brothers and sisters. You, you talk to these people every day. There's nothing that you don't share. But if you're the kind of person that doesn't share and keeps it all inside, that's the kind of person that I'm scared to go into law enforcement. Because if they don't talk about it, then they're not open about it. They're not dealing with it. Talking about it, this is one of the reasons that I think that this book that's coming out for, with you guys is great that veterans are writing about the situations that happen because they're getting it out there so that it's not this taboo subject that, that people are like, ooh. Because, you know, I go to a party, if I go to a party, you know, like, ooh, that's the cop or that's the, that's the, the guy in the military. That's what they focus on. And it be, you become bigger than you are, supposedly better than everyone else or, or above what everybody else. But we're not. We're just people. We deal with the same things you guys deal with. We just have to deal with it in a, certain, in a different way. And I think it's important that if you have that mental stability, going into law enforcement is the perfect avenue because you'll keep that paramilitary ideal. You know, you don't have to really pick out what you wear to work. <laughs> and you're around people that are like you, that want to do for their country and for their, and it's not just your country anymore. It's now it's your, now it's your town or your city. 
And people don't think about that. They think, oh, cops are going in there because, oh, that guy was bullied as a kid. Now he wants to prove that he's better than you are now. And there are cops like that. Let's, let's be honest. There are cops out there that suck. But in every job, there are guys and girls that, that aren't great people. But they, you know, they do the job they do. It just so happens when it's in law enforcement or in, you know, firefighting or in teaching or in clergy, when they mess up, that's big news because they're special. They're above the law. And there are laws created for them. If they mess up, the, the penalties are harsher. So you can't have a closed mentality coming into law enforcement. You can't have this idea that, that your dad paved the streets and that's why I'm giving you a ticket. You uh, insulted me by speeding. We all speed. We all, any given moment, we're all capable of doing or making mistakes, every single one of us. And so I, the way I go into it and the way I, all, I think that most cops out there go into it, they think this could be me and I need to help this person. There is that 1%. Well, that leads perfectly into my last question. You may have already answered this, but I'll ask it anyway. If you were to come across somebody who was about to transition out of the military in about two to four weeks and you had an opportunity to give them a piece of advice, what would it be? When I first went into ba- to, to the military, the, my recruiter said to me for basic training, because, you know, basic training is that big, scary indoctrination. And he said, just just take it with a grain of salt, Vance. It's, it's yes, it's, it's hard and it's scary, but it's really a big act, too. It's, the, it's just posturing to get you in the, the right way. And I think the same thing happens when you're going back home. Everybody out there is just like you are. You can bring that life with you, but you have to be cognizant of their life too. It's a, it's a balance in everything. It's a balance in every call I go to because sometimes I think the people I'm dealing with aren't that smart. But I have to treat them like they are. I got to treat them with respect. It's a line that people you lose in law enforcement. Be respectful, be courteous, but have a plan to kill everyone you meet. You got to have that be respectful and be courteous first. Expect that everyone's going to be good to you, but be prepared if they're not. And I think that's the whole thing. When you come out of the military, you're leaving an institution that has claimed for two, two to four years of your life or better that if you've done things one way, there's so many good things you've learned from that experience. Take the good things and, and assert them into your life now. The, the discipline, the, the honor, the integrity, all those good things that you learned. And when you come into the real world, you'll be respected for it. And you'll be sought out after it as long as you don't fall to the, I, I guess, the victim idea of, you know, nobody wants to hire me. Nobody wants to do anything. You can't have that kind of mentality. You've got to be strong. You've got to be, you know, go forward. Always push forward. Everything's a war in a way. Just keep going forward. Don't go back. Vance Foyles, thanks so much for being on Incoming. Thank you so much. Our next guest this episode is Natalie Lovejoy, a writer, composer, and lyricist whose original musical, Deployed, she began writing while married to a soldier deployed to Iraq. This is her music playing underneath right now that you're hearing. Her journey has taken her from Baltimore to Nashville and now New York City, 
where she tells us her story in her own words. Please meet Natalie Lovejoy. Hi, my name's Natalie Lovejoy, and this is my piece called Two Roads. To get from Nashville to Baltimore, you take I-40 East to I-81 North, cutting through Virginia. Then you take the 495 loop around the mess that is Washington, D.C., which will spit you out on I-95 North to Baltimore. I knew because I had made the drive alone, back and forth, last Christmas while my husband was deployed in Iraq. Now he is at the wheel, and I am in the passenger seat. We are on our way to visit our parents in Maryland before hopping back on I-95 North to go to New York City, where I am slated to start grad school in a month, and he is slated to start hunting for a civilian job. It is somehow much less fun this time. I first visited New York when I was seven years old, and afterward declared to my parents that one day I would live there. As I got older and took more trips to the city, this conviction only grew stronger. New York is where those who don't fit in, fit in, where competitive spirit is celebrated, where originality is valued, where high aspirations are the standard, and where every other corner is famous for something. Yes, I was also aware that it was overpriced, overcrowded, old, and sometimes hostile, but none of that mattered to me because I knew home isn't so much a place you go as it is a place where you belong. The GPS says it's only 34 miles until the Beltway. We are sitting in one of our car trip formations, his eyes locked forward, his back soldier straight, his jaw tight, his right hand gripping the steering wheel instead of my hand. I sit cross-legged with my body and eyes tilted toward the passenger window. I imagine the scenery flying by to the beat of the music on the radio and make up stories in my head to go with the songs, as I've done on every car trip since I was about four. I prefer the formation where I sit facing forward and he holds my hand, or the one where I hug his right arm with both of mine while his hand rests on my left thigh, every now and then creeping up my leg until I slap it away, pretending to be offended because I am a lady. Because those formations means things are good. The way we are sitting now is how we sit when there is something going on that neither of us wants to talk about. I finally go for it. Are you upset about something? I hope he doesn't say what I think he's going to say. I'm just nervous. I don't know that this was such a good idea. That's what I thought he was going to say. I decide to play dumb. Do you think we should have stopped in Bristol? What? No, that's not what I mean. I know what he means. He's talking about leaving the army and moving to New York. All during my grad school application process, he had been encouraging. When I got into NYU, he was thrilled for me. Go there, baby. You have to. It's New York. You wanted to go back to New York, and now is your chance. Plus, it's the best school for you. But it's the most expensive, and New York is expensive. I got into Belmont, too. If I went there, you could stay at Fort Campbell and... No, NYU is better for you. Don't pass this up. With his blessing, I paid my tuition deposit and set the wheels in motion to go to NYU. I did it all wrong. But you told me to go to NYU, remember? I retort, turning down Pete Seeger on the radio. Yeah, but that's only because I thought I wasn't coming back. We wordlessly fall back into formation, and he turns Pete Seeger back up. His reason for encouraging me to go to New York suddenly occurs to me. 
He entertained this morbid fantasy of heroically dying in battle and leaving me his life insurance, which I would then use to go off to the Big Apple. Instead, he is very much alive, and we are going to one of the most expensive cities in the country, with no jobs lined up, so I could attend one of the most expensive schools in the country, in the worst economic crisis since the Great Depression. Oops. At our farewell party, I had watched the look of panic and judgment cross everyone's face when we told them about our next steps. No, we didn't have jobs yet, but we'd find something. When I had moved to New York four years ago, before my newly commissioned boyfriend had proposed, I had found a full-time job in less than a month, so I wasn't worried. He wanted to work for the government in some capacity, and as a former army officer, they'd grab him right up. However, once the words left my mouth, I realized I sounded at best like a train wreck waiting to happen, and at worst, like a horrible person who was taking advantage of her sweet soldier's devotion. But there was another problem with our plan that I wouldn't comprehend until a few years down the road. He had returned from Iraq in mid-April. It was now mid-July. Three months. Three months. We hadn't even passed the honeymoon phase yet. Why hadn't anyone told me that asking a veteran to move from the installation of an army base to the concrete isolation of New York after a year in a war zone in such a short time span was a terrible idea for reasons that had nothing to do with me? I continue to stare at the window and try to feel as nervous as he does, but I can't. I feel guilty for being so excited about our move, but this is the first time in four years that I am something other than a bookmark in someone else's story. When I first left my job, family, and friends to join my new husband in Fort Bliss, the intoxicating buzz of newly weddedness quickly faded into a pounding hangover. My soldier came home to find me sobbing in the middle of our living room floor on a regular basis. It seems like you're not happy. He had always been very perceptive. I think I'm depressed. Why don't you go shopping? He suggested, trying to help. Or get a manicure. Outside the car, it starts to drizzle, and my mind drifts to the deployment a year later. By then, I'd learned to keep my outbursts to myself. In fact, it was my patriotic duty to do so. Don't tell him about your problems because it will upset him, and he needs to focus on the mission. It's okay for you to be upset, but not for him to be. Because what he is doing is important, and what you're doing is not. Because his life is important, and yours is not at least not as important as his. This is your role in life and you must accept it. You need to accept not mattering as much. But it's really not so bad. You get a roof over your head, free dental cleanings, and tax-free shopping at the PX. Mattering is overrated. Calm down, woman, and treat yourself to a manicure. I'm overreacting and overanalyzing as usual, my husband would tell me. My husband who doesn't talk much, who never cries who makes both his pain and joy invisible, who doesn't need me. No wonder the army loved him. Meanwhile, it had become apparent that I had the completely wrong disposition to be a military wife. A military wife is supposed to be there to encourage, not challenge, to enhance his life, not to have her own. I mean, not unless it's to have a portable career as a medical billing specialist. But after a while, my soldiers seemed to be growing disillusioned as well. 
Once I'm done with this deployment, I'm definitely going to be looking to get out of the military, he had told me during one staticky phone conversation. It's complicated to explain, he went on, but I'm tired of dealing with army BS. I'm not sure what I'm going to be doing as soon as I get out, but I'll be looking for a job while I'm over here. I know there are plenty of things I can do. The possibilities are really endless. We finally approach the outskirts of DC and he takes the ramp for 295. You should take 495, there's less traffic, I say, even though I know it's too late. No, there's more traffic on 495 at this time of day. <laughs> no, there's more traffic on 295. I used to live here. So did I. Just let me freaking drive. The car goes silent again, and we again resume our formation. The bad one. I stare out the passenger window in a way I hope conveys that I'm mad enough to jump out of it. And I could, too, because the car comes to a complete stop due to the wall of commuters ahead of us. He slams on the brakes just in time and grinds his teeth in defeat. And I'm both smart and dumb enough to keep staring out the window as if we're still speeding along at 75 miles an hour. Because, to be honest, I don't know yet which road is best because I have no idea where we're headed. I don't know yet how he will resent me for finding employment within the first week of our move, while he can't even find the ambition to leave our apartment. I don't know yet how I will resent him for spending the next six months listlessly poking around the internet for job openings, while I work from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. and go to class from 5 p.m. to 9 p.m., commuting an hour each way, only to come home to dishes from breakfast still in the sink, the bed unmade, and the refrigerator empty, save for some beers and leftover Chinese food. I don't yet know government jobs have a year-long waiting list. I don't yet know that even GameStop at the Jersey City Mall won't hire him. I don't yet know that he won't be able to just get over it. I don't yet know that the only people who will make him feel accepted are the other members of his reserve unit, and that they will keep us afloat by giving him temporary assignments for the following six months. And I definitely don't know yet that after a year of unemployment, he will re-enlist with the army for good, BS and all, and that three years later, we will be divorced. But really, how could I expect my army veteran husband, military brat and brother of a Marine, son of a Marine, who was also the son of a Marine, brother-in-law of an airman and nephew of two Navy men, to fit in anywhere else? He finally takes my hand. I look at him. He smiles at me cautiously, and I return it, cautiously. I'm sorry I yelled. I still love you. It's okay. I love you too, I say quickly. I'm sure everything's going to be fine. We love each other, and that's the most important thing. Everything else will work itself out. He squeezes my hand, and I squeeze his hand back. And look, he continues, the traffic is clearing up. We'll probably be home in time for dinner. And that is true. We are both headed home. Natalie Lovejoy, welcome to Incoming. Thank you, Justin. 
Let's start off with where you were in life physically and developmentally when you met your husband. I was finishing up my semester, the last semester of my senior year at Catholic University in D.C., and he had just gotten his bachelor's from the University of Maryland, so we were, they're kind of neighboring schools. I was in school for musical theater, then I also got, took classes in composition, so I was in the, the arts. He went to school for economics. And you don't have a history of military service in your family or any predilection towards the uniform? Um, not, not really. Um, you know, I, like everyone's grandfather, was in World War II, or mm. my grandfather was in World War II, like everyone else's. I have a, a distant cousin who is in the Army that I don't, I'm not that close with. I have an aunt that was in the Navy for a few years. My immediate family, my parents are with English professors, so yeah, I didn't really have any any contact with the military growing up except for what I saw in, like, the uh, movies my parents would watch, you know, The Longest Day and everything, like Hair, the musical Hair, I knew. <laughs> <laughs> so how did you two meet? How, who made the first move? Um, we met at a party. Uh, my sister was holding a party, and we met there. He told me his name, and he said, I'm going to join the Army. I thought that was kind of funny for a person to say to somebody, but I was like, all right, that's cool. Like, I didn't think I was going to end up dating this guy. So, yeah. That that's kind funny. of code for, like, hi, I'm going to disappear for a good amount of time <laughs> at some point in the yeah, near future. Yeah, well, you know, it, it's funny because he told me later that he said he knew he was going to marry me as soon as he saw me. And he said he walked into the room, he turned and saw me, and he just knew. So I don't think it was... I think he was just really proud of it, something to give him, like, a strong identity. Well, we dated for slightly less than a year before we got engaged, and then... We were engaged for another year before we got married. So we met in February of 2005, and he left at the end of June of 2005. I got sort of hooked right before he left. For a while, I thought, like, oh, this is just going to be a fling because he's not going. You know, he's leaving, and I'm going to go to New York. It just started growing on me. How did he present his interest in the military? Did he did he say he was a lifer when you met him? Did You know, he was a careerman, or did he have plans to just kind of do a tour for college? Or? Um, He didn't say specifically. You know, after we got a little more serious, I made it clear that I didn't want to be a military wife for the rest of my life. We had already been talking about, like, possibly getting married. After I said that, he said, you know, I'll get out after my four years of my contract's over, so don't worry about it, and then we can go to New York. And he's like, I'll get a job in economics or something. He had a best friend who moved to New York and got a job with a bank, and so he didn't think it would be a big deal to get out. Looking back, it's really naive of me to think that, that he wouldn't be career, because literally every male and both sides of his family is career military. I feel like it was kind of an inherited predilection. He grew up in the military. He, his dad was in the Marines. And I just think there's a comfort in that lifestyle that he has. I feel like the civilian lifestyle is just very foreign and scary to him. Can you talk a little bit about how you dealt with being separated so early on in your marriage when he first went off to training and then later deployment? Well, the first year was actually pretty good. We were at Fort Bliss, and he went to base every day and came home. But then it was about a year and a few months later, he got transferred to Fort Campbell, and that's when he deployed. I remember there was talk about him maybe deploying even sooner than that, and I remember saying we need to have some sort of time together before you leave to like strengthen our, our marriage and relationship. Otherwise, it feels really tenuous. It was really hard being separated that early on. I um, I always went to things alone. I went to uh, everyone else always had their plus one, and I was always, I swear I have a husband. My friends from high school like never met him, even though I've met all of their spouses multiple times. And they used to joke, they're like, Natalie, do you really have a husband? We don't believe you. We think you made him up. I'm like, no, I really do. He's never here. You said earlier that you didn't have plans to be a military wife. Can you talk a little bit about that struggle, about adopting that role, and at the same time trying to live as a creative, independent woman that you've seen yourself as, that had been your identity? I really went into 
the um, military wife role, not really knowing anything. I remember my future mother-in-law gave me like this big book of like officer wife etiquette. And I was like, what is this? Like I didn't even bother reading it because it was it seemed so like archaic. And I was like, no one does this. But I went in kind of blind to it. And uh, my husband had told me that, you know, I didn't have to get super involved. I didn't want to. I didn't, you know, I could be as involved with other military wives or the military as I felt like it. If I didn't want to do that at all, I didn't have to. So I never felt like pressured to be, you know, an officer wife. At the same time, uh, it was really hard just to give up my career and my, you know, what I was pursuing before musically. And I knew that it was supposed to be temporary. That was only going to be for a few years. So I thought, like, you know, I can give it up for a few years. Well, no big deal. But then, you know, actually doing it, it was ended up being harder than I than I thought it would be. And again, like I say in the story, like I, I was just very depressed the first few months when I moved to join him at Fort Bliss because I really had, I felt like I had no purpose. I guess I could get some job doing something to pass the time, but that's not the same as having a purpose. And I had been very focused on my music since, I mean, I started writing when I was like 10 and performing around the same time. I had very like specific goals. So I had been working toward this for like many, many years to just give it up. You know, I was 24 and I saw my other peers. They were going on to New York and Broadway. And meanwhile, I wasn't doing anything. And so that was rough. You said your goal was to go to New York when you guys got married and you had to kind of put that on hold for a little while. How did you keep your involvement in music following him around from to stations to station? I got involved with the El Paso Opera. I, I went to the office downtown and just, like, knocked on the door. I have a degree in music. I'm a singer and a pianist, a composer. I will do anything you want me to do. I just want to be around music. Like, I'll answer the phones. Just I need, like, something to do. So they, they did give me part-time work just doing office stuff. I ended up assistant stage managing an opera, Aida, and I ended up singing in two choirs, the El Paso Chorale and then a church choir. It wasn't much, but it was enough to keep me sort of plugged in to that music. kind of really saved me that year I was in El Paso. And then it's kind of interesting that the next place we moved to was really close to Nashville, which is Music City. While he was deployed, I actually, I lived closer to Nashville. I didn't live on base. I was like, if you're not going to be here for a year, why do I need to live near an army base when I could live near, near Nashville. So that was a really cool year. I worked as a receptionist on Music Row, and I worked at a music store. I taught music lessons. I was involved in the whole open mic music scene at Nashville, so that was really cool. Can you talk a little bit about how you and your husband communicated while he was on deployment, and if you did you know he was going to deploy? So I always thought that we were supposed to avoid getting deployed, and he actually ended up seeking it out. He asked to be transferred to a unit that was deploying to Iraq because he wanted to go. That caused any strife arguments he called me when i was at work and he said how do you feel about fort campbell and i was like uh where is fort campbell and he said it's about 60 miles outside of nashville and i was like so starved at that point for anything with music even though i'm not really a country music lover i was like yes yes let's go there and he said well before you get too excited i should tell you that that unit is that unit is deploying to iraq he told me that he wanted to go and he felt like it was something he was supposed to do he said i think i feel like we're supposed to go here I felt the same way. I felt like it was just something that was supposed to happen. At the same time, I felt, I did feel a little resentful that he he chose it. It wasn't like something that they just made him go. Was that the point where you felt like the military was kind of the other woman in the relationship? <laughs> yeah, there's that saying um, that he's married to the army and you're the mistress. Yeah, it definitely felt like that. Like throughout our marriage and even when he was in Fort Totten and we were in New York, like, well, the army says, the army says I have to and... You really can't argue with that. I mean, what are you going to do? So, yeah, you definitely take second priority to the Army. Or I feel like I might have even been third or fourth priority <laughs> to him. I feel like I had two brains going on. One was, like, 
the rational brain, you know, he wants to go, he he's already committed, so he has to, and, you know, it doesn't mean that he doesn't love you. And, like, that was the rational part of my brain. And then there was, like, another part that was, like, completely irrational 25-year-old girl who was, like, he doesn't love me, um, he doesn't care about me, he's left me for a year. And I kind of, like, just wrestling back and forth with those two sides of my brain all year. Can you talk a little bit about what some of the stereotypes of the military spouse are that you encountered or that you perceived among service members and civilians? There's a stereotype that, you know, we're all lazy and overly dependent. I mean, like, we're called dependents, which I always felt was a little insulting. And there is this stereotype that you're just there, kind of like freeloaders. There's a stereotype that we're all overweight. (laughs) It's just, yeah, it made me mad because... I mean, I feel like you're put in a position where you can't not be dependent because you really can't pursue a career very easily. And, you know, you can get jobs, which, you know, might bring in some money, but not enough to live on, not the stuff that's going to give you benefits. So, like, the military puts you in a position to be dependent on a soldier and then makes fun of you for being dependent. So I guess I always feel like as a spouse, they're just, like, waiting for me to screw up. I feel like they're just a negative vibe toward the spouses. I guess this is when you're asking me about the stereotypes. I'm guilty until proven innocent, I guess. People find out I'm a spouse. It's like, oh, you're a terrible person and you're an adulteress and you're a loser and a dependent. Prove us wrong. If this is the first time people are hearing from a military spouse on an interview, I don't want to make other spouses look bad. Not that I'm representative of the of a typical spouse or anything. but Do you kind of feel like the military spouse identity is kind of like the punching bag or the scapegoat for a lot of the problems that a service member goes through? There's a general, like, misogyny in the military. It's, like, woman-hating. And it it's taken out on female soldiers, and it's also taken out on the spouses. The problems of the female soldiers are coming to light now with, like, rape. They're called mattresses behind their backs. It is awful. And then the other even easier to target are the army wives because we don't even have the prestige of being a soldier to fall back on. So I think that's I think that's kind of where it comes from. Was there ever an anecdote where you were affronted by that? Like I remember, like since I've been dating, since, since I've been divorced, um, and if I mentioned on a date that I was an army wife, I've had guys come out and straight up ask me like, "Oh, did you cheat on him?" Which I think is like so super rude. And the fact that I would even like that's the first thing that comes to mind when I say I was an army wife, not like, "Oh, well, thank you for your service." You know, thank you for supporting our soldier. Like, no, it's like, oh, were you a slit? <laughs> so, like, yeah, that's that's a, that's one example. You mentioned in the conversation we had, you identified as neither being a veteran nor a civilian. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about the nature of that in-between identity. Sure. Obviously, I'm not a veteran. I also met civilians who, like I was before I got married, like have no real concept of military, who have their education is from, like, movies, Hollywood movies, who make, you know, assumptions based on things that aren't accurate. I'm not that either anymore because I've been in that lifestyle and I've been touched by those people, had my own experiences. So I'm somewhere in the middle, but like there's no, I mean, there's no word for, unless you're like, I'm an ex or I'm a veteran's ex-wife. That's like what I say, or I say I'm a former army wife, but there's no like one word like veteran that describes what you are, especially as an ex-wife. They can't say I'm like an army wife. An ex-army wife kind of just sounds like eh, ex. <laughs> it sounds so negative. Do you feel like you have a separate identity or dissociated from your peers because of this experience that they mostly don't have? I do. I, I feel disassociated from both groups. I feel like I don't, I don't completely connect to veterans and I, I feel excluded. I mean, it's nice when they include me, but I also get a sense that they're like, oh, a wife. They don't really want me there. In terms of the civilians, the non-military experienced civilians don't quite understand it either. I don't really know any other ex-wives in the arts. If you're out there, <laughs> I'm 
confined me. So yeah, I kind of I don't really feel like I belong any in any one place. What point did you decide to seek out your art as a way of bringing that story out into the public? It happened not completely consciously, but it was during the year he was deployed. I just really just did it as a way to sort of really as a release. Um, not I wasn't started out thinking that I was going to write a musical, but I just noticed, especially in terms of the wives, the wife experience, how it was sort of just sugarcoated. I didn't see it really represented accurately in entertainment. I felt like I was allowed to be sad and I was allowed to be, I was allowed to miss him. And those were the only two emotions. And yet I was really feeling like this roller coaster of emotion all year. And I kind of felt like, why isn't this being represented anywhere? Because I write music, I write songs, that's just how I chose to express it. And then there was other things in the military that struck me as like, oh, this should be a song. And like there was one that was like all acronyms. I was like, oh, we should make a song about all these army acronyms. That was just funny. But then at some point, I realized I had enough songs where I should sort of like maybe put them together into a whole musical. The clip you picked out for us to play on the air here, thank you for your service. Could you just intro that and talk about it? It was actually inspired by what my husband went through, or my ex-husband went through, when he came back and couldn't find a job, and he kind of kept going to lower and lower status jobs and so couldn't get hired. In the story, the main character comes back, gets out of the military in a similar way, looks for a job, and he first interviews with a businessman who doesn't hire, who says, you know, oh, you know, you're so great, and, you know, I would totally give this to you, but unfortunately, we just want someone with 10 years' experience. So, oh, but thank you for your service. And then he goes to a personal trainer, and he does the same thing, and he ends up at, like, a fast food restaurant who also won't hire him. We're back with our guest, Natalie Lovejoy, discussing the often ignored perspective of the military spouse and her original musical, Deployed. My last question before we leave here today, if you were to encounter a military spouse whose partner was about to separate from the military and come back home and re-enter civilian life and you can give them a piece of advice, what would it be? Well, first of all, I would say have a plan because I feel like we were kind of like crossed our fingers and didn't really have a really great plan. I also say to take advantage of all of the great resources that are available now, even more so than when my husband, my ex-husband got out. There's a lot of resources for, like, free counseling for soldiers, um, job placement, like, lifestyle coaches. They're all free. So, yeah, just take advantage of everything and also to find a, a just a social support base. My ex stayed with the reserves, and like I said in the story, it was really, really important for him to have that connection. But even if you don't stay with the reserves, you know, find a veteran group. And I feel like it's harder for spouses. I don't know, like I said, I don't know of any, like, ex-army wife groups on Facebook or something whatever she's into, whatever her interests are, and just like, stay social and stay connected to people. I think it's really important. Natalie Lovejoy, thanks so much for being on Incoming. Thank you. That's our show. Everything is a war. We hope Vance and Natalie helped you all understand that a person's singular experience does not stop with them, and we're all in this together, y'all. Incoming is produced by myself, Justin Hudnall. Jennifer Pepperpot Corley is our editor and sound designer at So Say We All. Featured music on this episode was by Enrico Falbo, Lee Rosevere, and our guest, Natalie Lovejoy. At KPBS, our radio production manager and mentor is Kurt Conan. Nate John is our remarkably hairless millennial innovation specialist. Emily Jankowski is our technical director. And John Decker is program director. 
Incoming is made possible through the support of the California Arts Council Veterans Initiative in the Arts, the KPBS Explorer Program, and supporting members of So Say We All. You can find us online at sosayweallonline.com, and if you want to get in touch, please do email us at info at sosayweallonline.com. Thanks so much for listening. Let's talk again soon. KPBS On Demand is supported by Rancho La Puerta, a wellness resort on 4,000 private acres in the mountains near San Diego. Family-owned since 1940, Rancho La Puerta offers mindfulness and fitness vacations featuring farm-fresh cuisine. RanchoLaPuerta.com.